Thank you, friends. Join me in a moment of prayer. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's good to be with all of you for a second Sunday. I was thinking about how it's uh, quite a roll of the dice that Barbara invited me for two weekends in a row, or you all invited me for two weekends in a row. Barbara was the, she was the front person, so you can hold her responsible, but, uh, you know, if that first Sunday doesn't go well, then it's going to make for a long two weeks, uh, <laughs> but, you know, here we are, and it looks like most everybody came back, so that's always a positive um, well, I'm, I'm really glad to be with you all and uh, continue to share on the theme of Advent uh, and uh, to be speaking specifically on one of my favorite people in the Bible, Mary. In our family, the Advent season is extra special. May, my middle daughter, was born on November 27th, 2009, just a few days before the start of Advent on the liturgical calendar. Lily, my oldest daughter, was born on December 19th, 2007. She was due on Christmas Day, but thankfully my wife's prayers were heard and Lily was born six days earlier. Now she doesn't have to compete for spotlight with the Son of God. As you can see, Advent is special in our house, the birthday boy, Jesus notwithstanding. Advent is a time of waiting and joyful anticipation of arrival. It's very much like the concept, uh, the Quaker concept of expectant waiting that we share together in open worship. There's so much buildup to the moment of a birth, and I think what can be just as important is the experience and the memory of that birth and sharing those memories over time. One of the practices that we do each year with the kids is we have a special birthday dinner where the kids pick out what they want to eat. Sometimes it's a meal at home. Sometimes they get to pick a place out somewhere. But during the dinner... My wife Emily and I share with our celebrant their birth story. Lily's is focused around the anticipation of our first child. Her birth made us parents and a family in a new way. May's birth involves being born in water. And then my son Clem invo involves time, patience, and a sense of calm. Each birth story, each birth and birth story is special. Each year, the details remain more or less the same due to Emily, my wife's high-functioning memory, no matter how much I try to exaggerate the story. But the stories do adapt and change as each child gets older and we get a sense of who they are and what their personalities are. What from these early memories do they need to hear now as they are growing? 
Can you think back to your own birth story or the birth story of your children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews? How did your family talk about these early stories? How has that shaped your life, their lives? Beginnings matter because they can tell us where the rest of the story is going. Be beginnings orient us towards the future. Both pain and promise are often found with origin stories. Birth stories have the power of building up or tearing down. Christmas is the origin story, not just of Jesus, but to all of those of us who identify as being followers of Jesus and his teachings. It matters to us, the church, whether, to, whether it is uh, the story is, a sweet, is sweet and quaint, domesticated and pretty, with Mary and Joseph smiling happily as she gives a complicated, complication-free birth in a stable. Everything's totally fine. Or maybe the story is a little different, a little more complicated, a little bit more about the build-up to dramatic change for our characters, Mary and Joseph, who play central roles in the story. If instead of meek and mild, Mary and Joseph are refugees on the run, homeless. It is inst instead of a knowing wink, maybe there's a conflicted look in Mary's face. Maybe a little bit of hope. Maybe fear. Then this birth story is different from how I think it often gets told or retold. The Magnificat here in Luke chapter 1 is an important part of Jesus' birth story both because of what it says about Jesus' birth and because of its liturgical repetition in the time of the early Jesus movement. The words of the Magnificat are powerful, beautiful, and celebratory, and they are words that were meant to be sung. It became known as the Magnificat Later, because, of the, because that is the opening word in Mary's song in Latin. In Greek, the word megalunai, which means to magnify or grow or enlarge. The Magnificat is thought to be one of the earliest Christian hymns ever recorded. And it is one of four hymns in the Gospel of Luke. It is the subject of much art throughout history, and composers have loved to set the words to music. How many of you were listening to Vivaldi or Bach this morning on your way to meeting? It's, it's there if you want it. For most of us, our experience of the announcement of a child's birth is cause for excitement. But that is not always the case. Sometimes a birth brings uncertainty and fear. For Mary, I see a mix of emotions. 
the birth of Jesus foretold by Gabriel is shocking news and certainly a disruption to Mary and Joseph's plans. But as she sits with the words, the singer-songwriter in Mary breaks out into powerful song. Along with her womb, pregnant with the Son of God, Mary says her soul is growing. It's enlarging, getting bigger because of what God has chosen to do through her. She is open to what is before her. The Magnificat records for us how Mary experienced the first Christmas as disruption, as revolution, as a turning of the tides. Mary sees that not only her fortunes, but the fortunes of the whole world are about to change. Her song sings of the role reversals of the powerful and the weak, the rich and the hungry. The rich are sent away hungry. Her folk, her folk song sings to an old world that is passing away and the birthing of a new world where God's justice and mercy prevail. God has looked down on his lowly servant, a young peasant girl, barely a woman, from a little town of ins insignificance called Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a town on the outskirts of empire, a city of dubious distinction, as one commentator puts it. Mary is from a place where it would have been easy to go unnoticed by God. God could have chosen a woman of power, a woman of wealth and prestige, the wife of a military or political leader, similar to the way the baby Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. But instead, God selected a young girl from occupied Palestine, a girl who meant nothing to history moments before. A young woman who wouldn't make roll call in many of today's churches. We are supposed to get that Mary is in all the obvious ways a bad selection. An unnamed person from an insignificant place. The Magnificat is Mary's response to the fact that God trusted her to be the mother through which liberation for the poor and the oppressed were announced. This is what the Christmas birth story is all about. A revolution for the insignificant, the overlooked, those turned away by empire then and those turned away by empire today. The Gospel of Luke begins with Elizabeth and Zechariah, two childless elders who are given a son named John, who will be a prophet paving the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. And then we find Mary and, and Jesus' stepdad Joseph, who we know even less about. These are the people God trusted to be the family and the caretakers of a completely history 
life-altering moment. If there were newspapers back then, the headlines might have read, The Underdogs of Human History Catch Major Break. You can see why this is cause for wild celebration. Mary shouts, Magnificat! Because her entire way of understanding and perceiving the world have been transformed. She shouts, Magnificat! Because it is her body offered as a sacrament to God which will birth a revolution of love. She shouts, Magnificat! because Mary learns one of the deepest truths in the Christian story. God is for us. Especially those who are broken and downtrodden, lost and without hope. In this story, we see that God takes one of us, a normal, ordinary, even less than ordinary young person, Living, living under Roman imperial occupation and takes her and says, you're the one I trust to make this happen. When I think back to the births of our three children and what it means to parent them, isn't it ultimately this? That we have been entrusted with these lives until the time comes when they go to live into the call that God has put on their lives. Mary understands this better than most. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. The Magnificat is the recurring memory of the birth story of Jesus. The joy of what Christmas meant to the people who were entrusted with the very first Christmas. I want to close with the words uh, from the Salvadorian priest, Oscar Romero. This poem called, I Am a Thought in God, captures to me the power and hope of the Magnificat beautifully. I don't know if you know about Oscar Romero, but he was a Catholic priest who was assassinated by the, um, by the government because he was um, serving and empowering the poor to stand up for themselves. This is, what, uh, this is what the poem or prayer, I Am a Thought in God, says. This is the Christian's joy. I know that I am a thought in God. No matter how insignificant I may be, the most abandoned of beings, one no one thinks of. Today, when we think of Christmas gifts, how many outcasts no one thinks of. Think to yourselves, you that are outcasts, you that feel you are nothing in history, I know that I'm a thought in God.
Would that my voice might reach the imprisoned like a ray of light, of Christmas hope, might also say to you the sick, the elderly, the elderly in the home for the aged, the hospital patients, you that live in shacks and shanty towns, you coffee harvesters trying to garner your only wage for the whole year, you that are tortured. God's eternal purpose has thought of all of you. He loves you, and like Mary, he incarnates that thought in his womb. This is what I think was going through Mary's head. This is what we should be thinking too. These words, more than any other, that should describe for us the heart of what Christmas is. I am a thought in God. I'm going to close with a responsive prayer. If you'd like to join me, the end of each line will be, I am a thought in God. No matter how insignificant you may think you are, the most abandoned of beings, where you feel you are nothing to history, I am a thought in God. Even when you are despised, unwelcomed, or judged by others, I know I am a thought in God. To those who have lost loved ones this year, I know I am a thought in God. To those who are struck with deep feelings of loneliness, I know I am a thought in God. To those who are wrestling with fear, uncertainty, and anxiety, I know I am a thought in God. To those who are dealing with life-threatening illnesses, I know I am a thought in God. To those for whom Christmas is not a celebration, but a time of grieving, I know I am a thought in God. To those for whom having bread to eat is an extravagant Christmas gift, I know I am a thought in God. To those who are sure they have lost their way, I know I am a thought in God. To those who have given up on God, who believe that God has given up on them, or who need reassurance that God is with them, I know I am a thought in God. And finally, to those who are a long way from home, I know I am a thought in God. We can say together with Mary, I know that I am a thought in God. Let Mary's song be our song our prayer, not just for ourselves, but for all those in our community whose stories match Mary's story.
May our commitments and practices, our faith and our lives, be so that all people everywhere will come to hear God's voice inside them, saying along with us, I know that I am a thought in God. Thank you, friends.